those questions. Hello and welcome to the uh, to the program. This is episode uh, what thirteen, right? Let's find out. Pretty sure it's thirteen. I bet you it's thirteen. I can tell I don't keep show notes. It is episode thirteen. It is Thursday, February third, two fifty-five p.m. And uh, this, my name is Don Johnson. This is the program for all time, and we will be reading a number of things today. But today, I'm going to start with a little bit from a book, just so that everyone can have a little bit of information in the back of their mind, at the bottom of the basement of their mind, to just backstop their knowledge about a topic that's on everyone's mind for one reason or another, and that is NFTs, a non-fungible token. And I'll be reading from, very briefly, the intro section of uh, a paperback that I'm surprised even existed, NFTs for Dummies, by Tiana Lawrence and Soyoung Kim, PhD, the investor and the professor. Beginning at the big, <laughs> beginning at the beginning, what is a non-fungible good? As you've likely learned from friends or Google searches before even purchasing this book, NFT stands for non-fungible token. Although tokens themselves are at a, are a relatively new development, the idea of grouping fungible and non-fungible goods is not. Think of dollar bills, shares of Microsoft stock, and Bitcoin. Each represent a defined set where items within the set are fungible. Put simply, we don't care which dollar bills we receive as long as we receive the right quantity, since each dollar bill fulfills the same purpose and obligations as another. Non-fungible goods are also a regular and far more prevalent part of our lives. Apples at the grocery store, orchids from the florist, and tickets to an upcoming concert, we inspect our fruit and our flowers and select the ones that are less wilted or bruised. With concerts, each ticket represents a different seat, and a front row seat is not happily exchanged for a seat that's far removed. By their nature, non-fungible goods are more difficult to system, excuse me, by their nature, non-fungible goods are more difficult to systematically record and track. For one, they require more information to be stored to denote their unique differences. While we can't digitize the world, there are many instances where we would greatly benefit from a reliable, transparent, and automated system designed to group organize, and digitally track non-fungible things that are important to us. Here's where NFTs come into play. They put a little uh, sidebar graphic for us. Remember, with a little string around the finger, remember. A non-fungible token is a unique digital identifier that's secured and stored on a public blockchain. One token is not interchangeable for another, and a token cannot be further divided. What an NFT actually represents depends on the intent of the developers. Much like how a cryptocurrency or a fungible token can represent a global medium of exchange, Bitcoin, a utility token used to fuel smart contracts, Ether, or a financial security linked to shares in a fund, BCAP, NFTs also differ in their current and potential uses. Although general interest in NFTs has been minimal to non-existent until recently, the development community has been teaming with fungible token activity for years. Following the successful launchings of Bitcoin 2009, Litecoin 2011, and Dogecoin 2013, a surge of projects followed, each spawning their own fungible tokens. 
Amidst the, this crypto wave, developers began to envision a world of digital collectibles, the crypto analog of Beanie Babies and baseball cards. These projects required a different type of token standard to ensure the uniqueness and non-divisibility of each crypto baby or crypto card. Finally, with the overwhelming success of CryptoKitties, a non-fungible token on Ethereum that debuted in 2017, the ERC721 non-fungible token standard soon followed to serve as a blueprint for the development community. Read more about CryptoKitties in Chapter 2. All right, maybe we will. Since then, there's been an explosion of NFT projects, with more than 15,000 NFTs deployed on Ethereum alone. And uh, I'm sure many thousands more since printing. The NFT space is still in its infancy, but already the development community is teeming with ideas on how to put them to good use. The most natural use case, the one currently dominating the marketplace, is in tracking digital collectibles. From there, gaming items and digital media were natural extensions. However, despite the recent explosion of NFTs, the current implementations are still rather limited in their scope and mostly surround monetization of collectibles. There we go. The industry has also been hampered by the get-rich-quick mentality that has plagued the crypto space in general and has also attracted many unscrupulous players. Now we're getting to the good stuff. Still, we see many interesting use cases for NFTs on the horizon. Some of these could truly disrupt the way we validate, track, and assign ownership of unique and esoteric items, or work to effectively democratize content creation and distribution. Imagine taking the costly detective work out of verifying the ownership history of a rare collectible, or imagine a world where expensive eBay auctions include proof of ownership on the Ethereum blockchain. Much attention is centered on speculation right now, but the potential value added by these existing possibilities far overshadowed the headlines announcing the latest NFT millionaires and NFT scam artists. This makes me think, really, that every uh, retro game or comic that you have could realistically have a an identifier slapped on it, sort of like in the official grading system. It, it makes me think of this. You could you could send an item into a grader, have it graded, then put it into a little warehouse, attach an identifier on it, and then anyone who wants to... Oh, I'm thinking of some truly evil thoughts. I, I'm just going to get off that train, but you can think about that on your own, because really, it turns into that art warehouse in like... Uh, what is it? Somewhere in... Uh, I think it's... Oh... There is, a, there is an art warehouse. I forget where it is. It's, it's probably somewhere where one of the Dutch masters lived, but it's an art warehouse that basically it's an international zone <laughs> where, uh, I don't know, it's the strangest thing. You can look it up, but it's, it's full of paintings that are securely identified and they are traded and bought and sold constantly without ever changing location or space, except maybe to move them to a different like private warehouse within that warehouse. Absolutely amazing. No one ever even like looks at the art. It's just used as a like a. I mean, it's it's the precursor to this exactly. Quite incredible, especially since it's associated with art. Fascinating. The cryptocurrency world was also met with a similar breath of reactions, ranging from deep skepticism to enthusiastic acceptance. But as governments and finan major financial institutions began to accept Bitcoin and Ether the promise of the underlying technology came to the forefront of discussions. Although NFTs have the benefit of following their crypto forerunners, who themselves are still quite young, we need much more time to see how the NFT ecosystem will evolve and what it will spawn next. Got a nice H1 here, finding out how an NFT works. People often confuse the NFT itself with what the NFT was built to represent. 
An NFT is a cryptographically secure digital record that verifies your ownership of or access to, say, a piece of digital art. Sort of like how your car title verifies ownership of your vehicle. You don't really own the car in your possession without the title, and you don't really own the CryptoKitty in your collection of JPEGs without the corresponding NFT. For example, under the crypto, uh, consider the crypto collectible known as the Mutant Ape Yacht Club. For one of 14 million of these exact same kinds of things. And yes, and you're probably thinking of like the Bored Ape Yacht, Ape, the Bored Ape Yacht Club, which is like the one that uh, Paris Hilton and Jimmy Fallon were showing off the other night on a show in like the most bizarre demonstration of human behavior I've seen in a long time to be broadcast on public television. But I digress. Um, for example, you may consider the crypto collectible known as Mutant Ape. Ape Yacht Club, M-A-Y-C. This strange new collection of mutant apes who may or may not be part of a yacht club is the latest range among NFT collect latest range among NFT collectors and now, the, you know, like I said, 15 million others just like it since print and is now the most active ERC-721 token out there. See, it's already wrong. And I don't know. Well, let's, let's just find out. When was this book printed? It was printed... This year. So this just came out. When browsing for MAYCs on OpenSea, one of the NFT marketplaces you can discover in Chapter 4 and Chapter 12, you notice the provocative graphics and characteristics represented on the marketplace platform. What you're seeing are the visual representations of each individual MAYC, the mutant ape yachts, in their club, but the NFT itself is the unique digital code that's secured on the Ethereum blockchain. For instance, consider MAYC 7632 in the upper left corner of figure 15, which I'm looking at, and I see a leather jacket wearing ape who's melting into what looks like teeth and uh, faces, and uh, he's looking real grim, which I guess is the point. Um, Purchasing this NFT means you're now the rightful owner of record of token ID 7632, which is in storage in the contract account, uh, a long string of numbers, on the Ethereum blockchain. All transfers of ownership may be memorialized on the blockchain so that provenance of MAYC 7632 and its current rightful owner can always be known, as shown in figure 16, which is exactly what you'd want to do with a rare piece of art, except for applying this to a JPEG that somebody made with like a random number generator, essentially. Um, as of this writing, 14,688 MAYCs exist across 7,709 holders. Two per holder, basically. This digital art print you see, uh, this digital art you purchase is easy to duplicate. Pressing the print screen key on the keyboard requires little to no training. However, because the NFT is secured on a public blockchain, it's far more difficult to illegally transfer, duplicate, or otherwise hack. The beauty of NFTs lies in the underlying technology, a nexus of smart contracts and distributed network validators that allows you to reliably and automatically verify who truly owns each of the 14,688 mutant ape NFTs. Thus, our mutant apes are part of the greater decentralized ecosystem where records are kept in a public and trustless manner, which means that we don't need a trusted central party, such as Bank of America, to maintain a reliable or secure system to track our mutant apes for us. In their peculiar way, these mutant apes are bringing further awareness to the burgeoning landscape of decentralized finance, aka DeFi, and decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs. Remember that term. DAO. We're going to read about a DAO that's been doing some stuff in the near future. 
To read more about DEOs, check out chapters four and six, or continue to listen to the podcast. The majority of NFTs are minted as ERC-721 tokens on Ethereum. Thus, as shown in figure 1-6, the provenance of each token is memorialized on the public Ethereum blockchain, which, believe me, it's just, it's very obvious. It's just a picture of a list of things, and there's the thing on the list. It's very clear to understand without the inset image. Each subsequent transaction is validated and executed by a distributed network of miners, much like the system securing the Bitcoin blockchain. Because an NFT is secured on a robust and tested blockchain, to date, the Ethereum blockchain has never been hacked. Developers of nascent projects, that's a, never say that. Never say something has never happened. Don't do that. Developers of nascent projects can piggyback off of existing systems in place to secure ownership records and reward systems within the latest sub-economy under development. Okay. They followed up my next thought. We caution, though, that although the Ethereum blockchain itself has yet to be hacked, individual smart contracts deployed on Ethereum have been. Thus, the recommended practice is to use vetted libraries that provide the best smart contracts, implementing development standards that have been reviewed and finalized by the greater community of core developers. Or don't do that and uh, lose your apes, as they say. We promise that the preceding paragraph makes much more sense after you dive into the technical chapters in part three of this book. And I'm going to skip the part about buying NFTs because that's kind of what I'm arguing against. But, you know, each their own. Maybe use one, uh, you develop one for a charity, which is kind of a concept I've been brewing up. But you can do whatever you like. All right, so the first thing I'm going to read is The Undoing of Joss Whedon. This is in, like, uh, I don't know, the last, the previous uh, New York Magazine issue, seven, January 17th, the 30th issue. The Buffy creator, once an icon of Hollywood feminism, is now an outcast accused of misogyny. How did he get there? In the fall of 2002, 160 scholars convened at the University of East Anglia in Norwich, England. They were an an eclectic group, theologians, philosophers, linguists, film professors, and they had descended on the medieval city for a conference dedicated to Buffy the Vampire Slayer, a cult television show about a teenage girl who fights monsters while attending high school in Southern California. It was not a typical academic gathering. There were life-size cutouts of the eponymous heroine, as well as Buffy-themed chocolates, action figures, and, in the welcome bags, exfoliating moisturizers. Buffy, the Backside Slayer. Professors stalked around in long black leather coats, like the vampire Spike, Buffy's enemy and later her lover. Hmm. If the line between scholarship and fandom was vanishingly thin, so was the line between fandom and worship. On the first morning of the conference, David Livery, a professor of English at Middle Tennessee State University, stood at the podium and declared the show's creator, Joss Whedon, the, quote, avatar of a new religion, the founder of a new faith. Lavery and two other professors would go on to establish the Whedon Studies Association, an organization devoted to expanding the field of Buffy scholarship. As Lavery would write in the introduction to a book he co-authored on the series, Whedon had not simply composed a narrative about a struggle against the, quote, forces of darkness, vampires, demons, monsters of all varieties. He had taken a stand against a panoply of oppressive, quote, social forces. Most obviously, the, quote, forces of gender stereotyping. 
According to the prevailing rules of Hollywood horror at the time, Whedon's protagonist, a hot blonde with a dumb name, should have died within the opening scenes. But Whedon had flipped the genre on its head, endowing her with superhuman powers and a hero's journey. It wasn't just scholars who worshipped him in those days. He was a celebrity showrunner before anyone cared who ran shows. In 2005, the comic book artist Scott R. Kurtz designed a t-shirt that gestured at Whedon's stature in popular culture at the time. Joss Whedon is my master now, it said. Marvel later put him in charge of its biggest franchise, hiring him to write and direct 2012's The Avengers and its sequel, The Age of Ultron, two of the highest grossing films of all time. His fans thought of him as a feminist ally. I did not. An impression bolstered by his fundraising efforts for progressive causes. But in recent years, the good guy image has been tarnished by a series of accusations, each more damaging than the last. In 2017, his ex-wife, Kai Cole, published a sensational open letter about him in the movie blog, The Rap. She condemned him as a, quote, hypocrite, preaching, feminist ideals, end quote, and accused him of cheating on her throughout their marriage, including with actresses on the set of Buffy. Then, beginning in the summer of 2020, the actors Ray Fisher and Gal Gadot, who had starred in a superhero film directed by Whedon, claimed he'd mistreated them, with Fisher describing his behavior as, quote, gross, abusive, unprofessional, and completely unacceptable, end quote. They were soon joined by Charisma Carpenter, who played Cordelia on Buffy and its spinoff series Angel. In a long Twitter post, she wrote that Whedon had a, quote, history of briefly uh, a history of being casually cruel. After she became pregnant, heading into Angel's fourth season, he called her, quote, fat to colleagues and summoned her into his office to ask, as she recalled, if she was, quote, going to keep it. She claimed he had mocked her religious beliefs, accused her of sabotaging the show, and fired her a season later once she had given birth. All the joy of new motherhood had, quote, been sucked right out, she wrote, and Joss Whedon was the vampire. Carpenter's comments threw the fandom into a crisis. Fan organizations debated changing their names. People on discussion sites wrote anguished posts as Sarah Michelle Gellar, who played the titular Slayer, and other Buffy stars offered words of support for Carpenter online. The community's sense of shock and betrayal could be seen in part as an indictment of the culture of fandom itself. As fans, in quotes, as fans, we have a bad habit of deifying those whose work we respect. Kurtz, the comic book artist, told me. When you build all those people up so big, they have nowhere to go but down. I don't know why we're surprised when they turn out to be failable humans who fail. Or fallible humans. Either way, that observation alone, the naivete of that observation alone, the fact that he thinks that he's now... Um, ascended for even thinking that level of realization and, and waiting that this long to have that realization shows exactly what the problem is. But I'll continue. This past spring, Whedon invited me to spend a couple of afternoons with him at his home in Los Angeles. By then, I had spoken with dozens of people who knew him. After months of agonizing over whether to grant my request for an interview, <laughs> I wonder why, he had decided to talk too. Whedon lives in Santa Monica, 13 blocks from the ocean, on a street lined with magnolia trees and $5 million homes. His house is open, airy, modern. He sat hunched over a black leather couch, his fingers clicking together, the thumbs tapping each of the other digits in quick succession whether the conversation shifted towards, whenever the conversation shifted towards his recent troubles. Hmm. 
pale and angular, with bags under his eyes, he no longer much resembled the plump cheek Puck, who once impishly urged a profile writer to describe him as doughy and jowly. Those were in quotes. It was a perfect day in Santa Monica, as almost every day in Santa Monica is, but Whedon wanted to stay inside. Gazing through a wall of glass at his lush backyard, he announced in his quiet rumble of a voice that he was thinking of getting curtains. The sun is my enemy, he said. Uh, like, what was it? Which one? Nosferatu was the movie that uh, made it so that vampires couldn't stand in the sunlight. There you go. This man is the living, living Nosferatu going around spreading the plague. A mental, <laughs> a mental plague that who knows if people will tie back to him. I don't know if they did that in the movie, really. I think it kind of leaves it up for, for uh, metaphor. Scattered around the room were paintings by his wife, the artist, Heather Horton. They got married in February 2021, just after the wave of allegations had crested. At the sound of the garage door opening, his shoulders relaxed. Heather's coming back, he said. She breezed through the room in a sundress complimented and complimented me on my glasses. Then she was gone. Picking up a cup of tea, Whedon said he could no longer remain silent as people tried to pry his legacy from his hands. Hmm, I wonder why people are trying to pry your legacy from your hands. Maybe you shouldn't resist. This article does not seem like the beginning of that, I would add. Uh, but there was a problem. Those people had set out to destroy him, hmm, and would surely seize on every utterance in an attempt to finish the job. I'm terrified, he said, of every word that comes out of my mouth. Maybe you should be. Maybe that's what you deserve. I will continue. Why did you take this article? If you, why? Just, <laughs> if you didn't want that. Just remain silent forever if you want less problems. Back when he was still a god, the kind that is contractually obligated to promote work uh, on network television press shows, um, Whedon was asked over and over to explain why he wrote stories about strong women. For years, he would answer by talking about his mother. Lee Stearns, who died in 1991, was an activist and unpublished novelist who taught history at an elite private school in the Bronx. One of her students, Jessica Neuwirth, went on to become a co-founder of Equality Now, an organization that promotes women's rights. Neuwirth, who has cited Stearns as an inspiration, described her to me as a, quote, visionary feminist. In 2006, Equality Now presented Whedon with an award at an evening dedicated to honoring, quote, men on the front lines of feminism. In his speech, Whedon referred to his mother as, quote, extraordinary, inspirational, tough, cool, and sexy. Sitting in his living room, he told me that he sees a different side of her now. Quote, she was a remarkable woman and an inspiring person, he, he said, but sometimes those are hard people to be raised by. Hmm. Whedon had been thinking a lot about his childhood. He had been in therapy for the past few years, ever since he checked himself into an addiction treatment center in Florida for a month-long stay. As a younger man, he had channeled his pain into his work, but he was never particularly interested in packing apart the stories that he always told himself about his past. Now, he didn't have much else to do. The allegations against him had led friends to stop calling. He was out of work and wasn't writing. What story could he even tell? There were things about his life he was only beginning to understand. Not the things beginning, uh, excuse me, not the things being said in the press necessarily, but things I am not comfortable with, he told me. I'm like... I have nothing going on. I can do 
some work on me. That's a weird sentence. I can do some work on me. I can do some work on me. <laughs> what? Born Joseph, Whedon, uh, grew up on a palazzo-style apartment building and in the Upper West Side. The family spent holidays reading Shakespeare out loud in the evenings and listening to Soundheim with friends. That whole, um, oh, that Shakespeare adaptation that he did. What was that? Um, I know, like, people were obsessed with that forever. Much Ado About Nothing. That's what it was. I, I, I couldn't, people wouldn't stop talking about that for the longest time. I don't, I never understood that. Um, anyway, uh, as a younger man, he channeled much of his pain into his work. Let's see. The Golden Girls and the, oh, here we go. Okay. His father, Tom, was a second generation television writer whose credits included The Golden Girls and The Dick Cavett Show. Interesting. He had lived through, apparently didn't learn much from the Golden Girls. He had lived through many writer's room battles, and he and Lee ran the home as though they were in the thick of one. If you weren't funny or entertaining or agreeing with them, they would cut you down or turn you to stone, he recalled. Cool. Whedon was the youngest of three boys, soft and slight. I wonder if the other two turn into characters like you. And anxious, he had a long red hair that caused people to mistake him for a girl, which he says he didn't mind. I, that's a message. That's not, he's, that, that's not, he's saying that for very complicated and manipulative reasons. Not for the legitimate reason that he might be trying to attempt to have you assume. He identified with, quote, the feminine, a testament maybe to his connection with his mother. She was, quote, capricious and withholding, but she was uh, but she frightened him less than his father, especially his brothers, quote, admirable monsters who, quote, bullied the shit out of him. On weekends and in summers, he would pass his mornings pacing the long driveway of the family's second home, a farmhouse near Schenectady, making up science fiction universes or plotting elaborate revenges on my brothers. Normal person. Whedon now has a long, uh, hmm. Whedon has a term for the damage his childhood caused. He says he suffers from complex post-traumatic stress disorder, a condition that can lead to relationship problems, self-destructive behavior, and addictions of various kinds. I asked if he would be willing to share his most traumatic memory with me. I'm going to run to the loo, he said. Like, totally normal thing for an American man to be saying when they're uh, in an awkward situation. What are you even, who, you didn't grow up in London. What, what are you doing? Why are you putting on an affect like that? It just makes you look like a maniac. Later he would slip, he would let slip that someone had advised him to pretend he needed to pee if he felt uncomfortable with the question. What is your, what are you doing? Why do you even have a publicist or an advisor or anything at all? If you're going to do this article and then take advice and then still say the advice that they let you say because you can't be trusted to be a normal person. Returning to the couch, he affected a sort of Vincent Price voice. <laughs> um, so 
excuse me, sir. Um, can you tell me your most traumatic moment? Uh, I'm just going to go to the loo. I'll be right back. And you're sitting there. And you're taking your time. And you're being a patient journalist. And then he returns and he's like, uh, hmm, let me see. Actually, I'm just going to provide a little bit of an extra. We're going to act this out just for a second. Because I know how, 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 come on. How can I, how can I miss this? Come on. Oh, yeah. Okay. So you ask him. You ask Joss Whedon this. <sighs> You're chatting with Joss Whedon. He's like, you know, I now have a term for the damage my, uh, that I had in my childhood. It's complex post-traumatic stress disorder. It's a condition that can lead to relationship problems, self-destructive behavior, and addictions of various kinds. That's what he sold me. And then I asked him if he'd be willing to share his most traumatic memory with me. And then he said, I'm going to run to Lulu, mate. And then uh, a few minutes later, he comes back, and then he says something like this. Uh, yes, much like this. This is what he says. This is him coming out of the bathroom. Coming back, he's walking back from the bathroom. And, uh, and now, terrors of horror and woe. Childhood caused post-traumatic stress, a condition that can cause two relationship problems of self-destructive behavior with additions of various kinds. I asked to be willing to share his most traumatic memory with me. I'm going to run to the loo, he said. Later he let slip that someone had advised him to pretend he needed to pee if he felt uncomfortable with the question. Returning to the couch, affected. A sort of Vincent Price voice. And now, Whedon said the tales of horror and woe. When he was five, a four-year-old boy, the son of family friends, disappeared on his parents' property upstate. Eventually, his body was found and he had drowned in the pond. Years later, as a teenager, Whedon remembered he had called the boy over to the pond to play with him. After getting bored, he had walked away, leaving the boy alone by the water. I don't think it was my fault. Whedon said, I knew I was five, but it didn't just disappear as a thought. I took him another 30 years, he said, before another thought dawned on him. Even after the incident, his parents never taught him how to swim. There was no structure, he said there was no safety at all. His parents split up when he was nine years old. At 15, he went to an all-boys boarding school in England, where he read more Shakespeare, joined the fence team, <laughs> and struggled to make friends. I was very dark and miserable. This hideous 
Little homunculus who managed to annoy everyone, he told the author of Joss Whedon the biography. Then in 1983, his fortunes changed. He had arrived at Westland University, where he discovered his artsy, angsty personality could actually be attractive to women. He got a girlfriend and traded his basic name for a more interesting one. Then he found a mentor, the eminent film scholar, Jeannie Bassinger. I'm going to continue. Bassinger, a sort of campus Svengali, surrounded herself with acolytes, Michael Bay, Mike White, D.B. Weiss. In one of her books, A Woman's View, she espoused the artistic merits of the woman's picture, a generic... Uh, a genre that predominated the middle of the 20th century. The heroines of these films led fabulous lives as successful single girls in the workplace until just before the closing credits when they gave it all up for marriage. Um, Vertigo, I think is it? No. Rear Window, not Vertigo, excuse me. Rear Window is a good example of that, sort of. I mean, I guess she's going off in an adventurous lifestyle, but she's going to live it with a travel author and take up his lifestyle, essentially. And it seems like that she is actually talked into the fact that it's not what she should be doing and he's actually kind of manipulating her into joining it, which is backward. Anyway, I'll continue. It's a, it's a movie from the 40s, so I don't know. Um, let's see. Seen from one angle, uh, the movies promoted sexist conventions. From another, they celebrated women's liberation. Bassinger argued they did both, and she perceived this ambiguity made them interesting because it reflected the messiness of the human mind. Exactly. This insight stayed with Whedon, who had no trouble understanding how messy the mind could be. Actually, he did, but whatever. He admired strong women like his mother, yet he discovered he was capable of hurting them, usually by sleeping with them and ghosting or whatever. He would later tell his biographer this duality gave him quote, an advantage over the girls in his college class on feminism when it came to discussing relations between the sexes, quote, I have seen the enemy, he said, and he's in my brain. Unbelievable. After Westland, Whedon moved to L.A. where he met Cole and wrote the screenplay for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the 1992 film directed by Fran Rubel Kuzoy. He wanted to tell a story about someone who turns out to be important despite the fact that no one takes that person seriously. Quote, it took me a long time to realize I was writing about me. <laughs> he told me this motherfucker is writing his own hit piece. I mean, maybe that's a strategy, but if he's, he's doing it in the wrong way. It took, it took me a long time to realize I was writing about me, he told me, and that my feeling of power, powerlessness and constant anxiety was at the heart of everything. His avatar was not a fearful young man, however, but a gorgeous girl with extraordinary courage. He wanted to be her, and he wanted to fuck her. The writer writes, I am not editorializing, as in the article, in 1995, I mean, psychosexually, let's analyze a little bit and just think about that, but um, you can draw those lines. In 1995, executives at the fledgling WB network invited him to turn the idea into a series, building on his initial premise he reimagined the monsters as metaphors for the horrors of adolescence. In one climactic scene, Buffy loses her virginity to a vampire who has been cursed with a soul. Hmm. The next morning, his soul is gone and he's lusting for blood. And I know that I have probably a lot of listeners, and I will have a lot of listeners who are fans of the show. And I never watched it based on the basis that it was made by Joss Whedon. Or I've never watched actually any of his shows. The only things I've ever seen of his are those Avenger films, whichever ones he was attached to. I can never get into any of it. Uh, what is it, Serenity? Firefly? That's not... 
I don't know. It's not like I was like reading into the future, but I, it's, it's something about the vibe, it was just always off for me. I could never get into it, even though I enjoyed many other genre fiction things completely similar to it. I don't know. Um, so I don't have the personal familiarity to deny anything that like about the content that you might be like in your head stipulating. But yes, the content was this, but that. I, I, I admit that I do not have that context. I wasn't going to watch six seasons before I read this article. I <laughs> did as much research as I could. Um, oh, let's see. In 1995, executives at the fledgling WB network invited him to turn the idea into a series building on his original premise. He reimagined the monsters as metaphors for the horrors of adolescence in one climactic scene. Buffy loses her virginity to a vampire who has been cursed with a soul. The next morning, his soul is gone, and he's lusting for blood. And a young woman who has gone to bed with a seemingly nice guy only to wake up with an asshole could relate. Like those women's pictures Bessinger had written about in the show... Uh, and invited a multiplicity of interpretations. You could see it as a story of female empowerment or as the opposite, the titillating tale of a woman in leather pants who is brutalized by monsters. It's like a Laura Croft kind of tale. It's the same kind of setup. You're setting up for some different perspectives. When it came out, critics mostly read it as the former. It was in the late 90s, after all. In 1998, shortly after Buffy's second season aired, Time published an infamous cover asking, Is Feminism Dead? As the story's author, uh, Junia Belafonte, noted, the protests of the 60s and 70s were long over. Gloria Steinem was defending Bill Clinton in the New York Times, and the struggles for equal pay and child care had been subsumed by the corporate pageantry of, quote, girl power. The glib spectacle of powerful women on TV... Oh, excuse me. I misread that entire sentence. Um... The struggles for equal pay and child care had been subsumed by the corporate pageantry of, quote, girl power. Yes, exactly. The glib spectacle of women having power on TV, specifically. Yes. Buffy was actually far more complex than most of the other examples of this phenomenon. And in so much of Whedon's work, the lines between good and evil were blurred. The good guys sometimes did monstrous things, and the monsters could occasionally do good. Hmm, it's almost like everything's not black and white, and things are gray, and that's how all stories should be written. But the media likes a story with a clear-cut hero, and Whedon wasn't above playing the part. Quote, I just got tired of seeing women be the victims, he told the LA Times in 2000. I needed to see women taking control. In 2000. In those early days of the internet, before nerd culture swallowed the world, fans flocked to a message board set up by the WB to analyze Buffy with the obsessive zeal of, Tal of Talmudic scholars. Whedon knew how to talk to these people. He was one of them. He could visit the board at all hours to complain about his grueling schedule or to argue with fans about their interpretations of his work. Back then, as he pointed out to me, can you imagine a creator doing that now? I ask, knowing that the answer is they do it all the time. Back then, as he pointed out to me, the internet was, quote, a friendly place, was it? And he, the quick-witted prince of nerds, had the advantage of it. At one point, fans became convinced Buffy and another slayer, Faith, were romantically entwined. After Whedon shot down that theory, accusing his proponents of seeing a, quote, lesbian subtext behind every corner, Jesus Christ, one of the posters, Buffy Nerd, sent him a link to her website, where she had published a meticulous exegesis of the relationship. He returned to the message board to applaud her, sort of. By God, I think she's right, he declared. Dropping the facetious tone, he concluded she had made some good points because he had no idea about the actual undertones of what he was writing, because he was only writing what he was writing, because he was titillated and not 
just as the article suggested above. Good writing. Good writing there. I like it. Uh, I say, bring your own subtext, he proclaimed, coining a phase, uh, phrase that fans would recite like scripture. I love when fans recite things like scripture about your show. It definitely means it's a show and not an avatar for their hopes and dreams, and you're going to throw them on the ground someday. Occasionally, some of Buffy's stars and writers would gather at Whedon's house to watch episodes. They'd huddle around his computer, log on the board, and chat. Once, Allegan Hannigan, who played Buffy's friend Willow, posted her number to the site. She was moving to a new apartment the next day, but planned to keep her old landline connected to an answering machine so posters could leave her messages. One fan called so quickly, he caught her before she had a chance to set up the machine. Oh. Every year, the regular posters would hold an IRL party where Whedon would make an appearance. Brian Bonner, one of the organizers, recalled running into him outside one of these events. Bonner suggested he use the VIP entrance, but Whedon shook his head. No. I'm good. It's fine, Bonner recalled. He was always this approachable, down-to-earth guy. Another organizer, Allison Beatrice, who wrote a book about Buffy fandom, described her annual gathering as a sort of family reunion. Yeah, I mean, most geek culture uh, organizations of people are like that. You have your Comic-Cons, San Diego, and you have your Comic-Cons, Orlando, and you have your mag fests and your gen cons and you have all those things and every time you get together with your people or you meet new people or whatever those people are your people no matter who they are whether you're friends or strangers or whatever you walk into a crowd like that all around one thing whether it's games or movies or books or tv shows or whatever you're there for and holy shit it's like brain the brain meld is on and uh, you never want it to end but of course it does and you go back to your regular life and then you realize that like living with people like that all the time might drive you insane i don't know it's, that's always been the case with me when i left and i had that perspective but uh i don't know maybe it was my dream denied to myself every year the regular the regular posters etc let's see many found their closest friends through the fan community i know about that I found my friends through an insane online community where we, uh, you know, posted gross pictures to make each other mad. Uh, the most appealing ideas in the show that was a group of social outcasts would come together to form a chosen family. When we meet Buffy, <laughs> Buffy, when we meet Buffy, her father is absent. Her mother is distracted by work, and she is isolated by the lies she has to tell to cover up her life as a slayer. At school, she falls in with a gang of nerdy friends who know who she really is. Together, they take on the evil teachers, bad boyfriends, and goat horn demons, saving the world and one another again and again. Fans believed that Whedon had found his chosen family, too, behind the scenes of the show they all loved so much. But chosen families are not necessarily spared the strife that can plague any family. I felt very conflicted with the fans, one Buffy actress told me. I didn't have the same feeling about the show, but I also know sometimes people don't want your truth. Exactly. They don't. The fans don't want the truth. They want the truth that they believe. They don't care about the actors and actresses, even though they think they do. They have no concept of... They've, they've completely lost touch by the time that they're that connected to the avatar of their character. There was a cult of silence around that sort of behavior, she said. Yeah, you just, you don't talk about it and you pretend it's not happening. I can't imagine that there's any real way to deal with it other than to be recognizant of it and then be completely dismissive of it and then still pretend like you are uh, unaware of it. That's just what everyone does. Whedon was 31 when he began running Buffy. He was never uh, a showrunner before and had never been a boss of any kind. Cool. Can't imagine running a show at 31. It'd be a complete fucking disaster. 
At first, when the crew members would hold the door open for him on set, he would do an awkward dance and insist on holding the door for them. It just felt so fucking wrong, he told me. Then one day, in the third season, a crew member neglected to hold the door, and Whedon walked straight into it face first. Oh, I see, Whedon recalled, thinking, you did get used to it. By the next year, he would be running two shows at once, Buffy and Angel. Soon, he added Firefly to the mix. He spent his days racing among the sets to the writers' rooms, exerting control over countless aspects of the productions, from the story arcs down to the details of makeup and wardrobe. One actor described him as, quote, a huge pulsating brain. There were a thousand things he was tuning into at every moment. He could make the slightest adjustment and the scene would go from a three to a ten. A sort of cult of personality formed around Whedon. Once a month, he would invite his favorite cast and crew members to his house. Ooh, buddy. They would hold Shakespeare readings in the amphitheater that Cole, an architect, had built in their backyard. It was like being a part of this little family, said an actress who was on the inner circle at the time. One Buffy writer recalled Whedon signing posters for every member of the writing staff. They soon, uh, they stood around as he bestowed each of them with personalized words of wisdom, like, quote, a guru on the hill. Oh, wow, he really is ascending to godhood here. Scenes like this were not uncommon. Fantastic. The standard reaction to Joss was worship, the writer said. Even people who didn't worship him told me working with him could be a wonderful experience. Miracle Laurie, an actress on Whedon's 2009 series Dollhouse, was a size 12 when she got the job. Whedon told her not to go on a diet. Quote, he was trying to show that a size 12 woman is normal, sexy, beautiful, and strong. She said, quote, I still get people coming up to me saying how much it meant to them. I felt celebrated by him, end quote. Like many I interviewed, she was surprised to hear her colleagues felt differently. But looking back, she remembered glimpsing another side of Whedon. Quote, I saw his kindness in his good intentions, she said. I also saw the starkiness, the fickleness, where I would not want to be on the other side. Seems like in a workplace <clears throat> in general, if you see something, and this isn't calling her out specifically, but if you see something in the workplace that you wouldn't want to be on the other side of, you should probably put yourself on the other side of that thing. You should be on the side where, where the... You really should. Almost every time. Um, that's just what you should be doing. Anyway. Sarah was adamant about it in a certain way. Let's see. Um, Buffy costume designer Cynthia Bergstrom recalled an incident that happened during the filming of season five. In one episode, Spike asks a, uh, ask a sadistic science nerd to create a sex robot version of the Slayer, Buffy. Whedon and Geller did not agree on what the Buffy bot should wear. Quote, Sarah was adamant about it being a certain way, Bergstrom said. Quote, the costume she wanted was a bit grandma-ish, a pleated skirt and high neck. He definitely wanted it to be sexier. So she was thinking more, you know, uh, like the end of Ghost in the Shell, you know, Un unsexy um interesting <laughs> uh Whedon grew frustrated on the day Geller wanted to try different options I was like Joss let's just get dressed Bergstrom recalled he grabbed my arm and dug in his fingers until his fingernails imprinted the skin and I said you're hurting me a Firefly writer 
remembered him belittling a colleague for writing a script that wasn't up to par. Instead of giving her notes privately, he called a meeting with the entire staff. Quote, it was intended to be, uh, it was intended to have a slide projector, and he read her dialogue out loud and pretended he was giving a lecture on terrible writing as he went through the slides and made funny voices. Funny for him. The guys were looking down at their pages, and this woman was fighting tears the entire time. I've had my share of shitty showrunners, but the intent to hurt, that's the thing that stands out for me now. There you go. Perfect character. A high-level member of the Buffy production team recalled Whedon's habit of, quote, writing really nasty stories. But that wasn't what disturbed her most about working with him. Whedon was rumored to have been having affairs with two young actresses on the show. One day, he and one of the actresses came into her office while she was working. She heard a noise behind her. They were rolling around on the floor, making out. They would bang into my chair, she said. How can you concentrate? It was gross. This happened more than once, she said. These actions proved he had no respect for me and my work. She quit the show even though she had no other job lined up, which is the number two rule of Hollywood. Then there were the alleged incidents on two Buffy... Mm. Then there were, there were the alleged incidents two Buffy actresses wrote about on social media last year. Michelle Trachtenberg, who played Buffy's younger sister, claimed there had been a, a rule forbidding Whedon from being alone in a room with her on set. It's notable because she was like uh, 16 at the time. Whedon told me that he had no idea what she was talking about, and Trachtenberg didn't want to elaborate, which means it's probably true, of course. One person who, or it is true, one person who worked closely with her on Buffy told me an informal rule did exist, though it was possible Whedon was not aware of it, for obvious reasons. One person who worked closely with her on Buffy told me an informal rule did exist. Uh, oh, uh, During the seventh season, when Trachtenberg was 16, Whedon called her into his office for a closed-door meeting. The person does not know what happened, but recalled that Trachtenberg was shaken, in quotes, afterward. An adult in Trachtenberg's circle created the rule in response. The story of Whedon's conflict with Carpenter is less obscure. The actress has been talking about it with fans and reporters for more than a decade. The tensions with Whedon developed well before her pregnancy. By her own account, she suffered from extreme anxiety and struggled to hit her marks and memorize her lines. Whedon, obsessed with, her, uh, obsessed with word perfect dialogue, something I've heard many times, um, was not always patient. After she moved on to Angel, she got the tattoo of a rosary on her wrist, even though her character was working for a vampire, a creature repelled by crosses. Another time, she chopped off her long hair in the middle of filming an episode. In her Twitter post, Carpenter seemed to blame Whedon for her performance problems. She wrote, his cruelty intensified her anxiety. Of course. She got the tattoo. It sounds like a horrible working set. She got the tattoo, she explained, to help feel, quote, spiritually grounded in a volatile work environment. Whedon acknowledged he was not as civilized, in quotes, back then. I was young, he said. I yelled, and sometimes you had to yell. This was a very young cast, and it was very easy for everything to turn into a cocktail party. He said he would never intentionally humiliate anyone. If I am upsetting somebody, it will be a problem for me. <laughs> yeah, well, clearly you're very fucking uh, incapable of detecting whether you're doing that or not. The costume designer who said he grabbed her arm, quote, I don't believe that, he said, shaking his head. I know I would get angry, but I was never physical with people. Had he made out with an actress on the floor of someone's office, that seems false. I don't understand that story even a little bit. He removed his glasses and rubbed his face. I should run to the loo. 
when he came back, he said the story, <laughs> once again, he did the, uh, I'm going to run to the loo. When he came back, he said the story didn't make sense to him because he, quote, lived in terror of his affairs being discovered. Sounds like he did. He had some regrets about how he spoke with Carpenter after learning she was pregnant. I'm going to go to page 70 real quick to finish up the story. Uh, I believed I was mannerly, he said. Still, he was bewildered by her account of their relationship. Most of my experiences with uh, charisma were delightful and charming. She struggled sometimes with her lines, but nobody could hit a punchline harder than her. I asked if he had called her fat when she was pregnant. Quote, I did not call her fat. He quickly replied, of course I didn't. Yeah. Methinks, since you're such a fucking Shakespeare fan. Uh, but he did call other pregnant women fat. Rebecca X, as she asked to be called, was known as Rebecca Rand Kirshner when she wrote for the last three seasons of Buffy. Since then, she has dropped her patriarchal last name. She saw Whedon at a photo shoot a few years after the show ended when she was weeks away from giving birth. Quote, I was happy to see Joss, and the first thing he said to me was, oh, you're fat. <laughs> I'm not only laughing because it's so shocking. She told me. She knew he was joking, but she didn't find it very funny. Did it hurt me? Yes. <laughs> Did I say, hey, I got a baby in here. What's your excuse? In so many unsaid words, yes. But I think he was actually slim at that point. My point is, it was a dick move. But I wouldn't call it abuse. Interesting. Uh, sounds, we'll just move on. One day I took a walk with Rebecca X around the Huntington Botanical Gardens near Pasadena. She wore, she wore dark glasses and an Hermes scarf tied around her dark gold hair and spoke with an inflection that called to mind the mid-Atlantic accent of an old-fashioned Hollywood star. I had reached out to her after hearing Whedon had made her cry in the writer's room. In the months leading up to our meeting, she had sent me a series of probing emails, excavations of long-buried memories. Once, she was in the middle of pitching an idea when Whedon placed his hands on the back of her chair. Keep going, he told her, as he tilted the chair backward and lowered her to the ground. Is that a toxic environment, she asked me. I don't know. What is normal behavior and what isn't? As she led me down a widening garden path, past the terrace of shared delights and the pavilion for washing away thoughts, she alternated between criticizing Whedon and questioning her reasons for, question, for criticizing him and questioning her reasons for questioning those reasons. Yes, she said she had once burst into uncontrollable tears after Whedon gave her notes on a script outline, but she couldn't say for certain whether, though, it was her, his fault. The writer's room was as rowdy as a pirate ship, uh, she said. She and the other writers would spend all day sitting around on chintz couches, making one another, another laugh while plumbing their most painful memories for story ideas. They would fuck with each other, and Whedon would fuck with them too. Though if you ever fucked with Whedon, he might get mad. Quote, did the approach giving notes in a way that was, health, that was healthy and consistent with the ideals of the endeavor, she wondered? No, he is a blunt instrument, but I'm a very delicate receiver. I would point you to the author's couple previous paragraphs. She also thought the people who worshipped him had it wrong. Quote, I thought he was a false god, she said. I talked about Joss as if he were a human and people gave me shit for it. Sounds like she has st Stockholm syndrome almost. 
Still, she wondered if those who had been hurt by him had misunderstood him. Whedon was not the first boss in the history of moving pictures to make a writer cry. On his sets, the budget was tight and the hours were long. Everyone was exhausted. And by many accounts, Whedon was always, didn't always clearly convey what he wanted. A Buffy writer once spent a week researching Irish folklore because it was unclear Whedon had been kidding when he said he wanted to do an episode about leprechauns. Joss, quote, is a layered and complex communicator. One longtime collaborator told me, quote, his tone is deflecting. It's funny. It's got wordplay, rhyme, quote marks, some mumbles, some de self-deprecation, a comic book illusion, a Soundheim illusion, and some words they only use in England. There you go. <laughs> Running to the loo once again with his stupid words. This means you, the recipient, have to do some decoding. You have to decide if there was a message in there that you were meant to cor correct you, sting you, rib you affectionately, or shyly praise you. It's called poetry. He's also using it in a very poor manner if it's not clear. Can a poem, <laughs> can a poet, can a person have many bad parts and yet another person they encounter only experiences the good parts? Rebecca Muse in one of her emails, can we miss the bad parts of people? I know we can. Did I? She went on. Joss was a dweeb, and Joss was sharp as hell, and Josh w Joss was a dick. But to me, he wasn't a toxic dick. He was the kind of dick a person is on the path to becoming someone better. I did believe that. A few days later, she sent me a text. Joss is a beautiful person, she wrote. But you know that, she added dryly, I'm actually particularly vulnerable to abusive people. On our second day of interviews, I asked Whedon about his affairs on the set of Buffy. He looked worse than he had the day before. His eyes were faintly bloodshot. He hadn't slept well. I feel fucking terrible about them, he said. When I pressed on about why, he noted, it messes up the power dynamic. But he didn't expand on that thought. Instead, he quickly added that he had felt, if he had, to sleep with them. Excuse me. On our second day of interviews, I asked Joss Whedon about his affairs on the set of Buffy. Affairs, like sexual affairs. He looked worse than he had had the day before. His eyes were faintly bloodshot. He hadn't slept well. I wonder why. I feel fucking terrible about them, he said. When I pressed on for why, he noted, it messes up the power dynamic. <laughs> you, you fucking guess? But he hadn't expanded on that thought. Instead, he quickly added that he felt he had to sleep with them. He felt, oh, I have to sleep with these folks. I had to. I was powerless to resist, he added. I laughed. I'm not actually joking, he said. <laughs> the writer laughed in his face. He's that fucking stupid. Like the, the Joss Whedon. He had been surrounded by beautiful young women, the sort of women who had ignored him when he was younger, and he feared if he didn't have sex with them, he would, quote, always regret it. Normal fucking mindset. This kind of fucking psycho behavior, this kind of brain thinking that he has is so pervasive in the writer's rooms of virtually every piece of content that's come out in the last 20 years and still will probably come out for the next 10, 15, 20 years, if not for eternity. I mean, this kind of mindset is so pervasive. I'm the saber that's going to come and save you, and if I don't fulfill the roles that I have found myself, you know, longing for, meanwhile, never realizing that the roles that he's thinking that he should has to put himself in are the very roles that he's writing to portray the ignorance that creates... Uh, He's so fucking clueless. I mean, he basically, this is what he did. For, I'll just finish the article for 
first, because because why not? Let him let him continue to embarrass himself. I'm not actually joking, he said. He has been surrounded by beautiful young women, the sort of women who had ignored him when he was younger, and he feared if he didn't have sex with them, he would, quote, always regret it. Looking back, he feels some shame and horror. He said, I thought of something he had told me earlier. A vampire, he'd said, is the, quote, exalted outsider. A creature that feels, quote, less than everybody else, and also kind of more than everybody else. There is this insecurity and arrogance. They do a little dance. Buffy ended in 2003, but his affairs did not. He slept with employees, fans, and colleagues. Eventually, his wife found out. In 2012, they split up. In Cole's open letter to fans, she accused him of using feminism as a cover for his infidelities. In fact, I would say that he used it as bait. He's always had a lot of female friends, but he told me it was because his mother raised him as a feminist, so he just liked women better. I'm sure we've all heard that online many times in a screenshot from a notes app. After learning he had been deceiving her for 15 years, she was diagnosed with complex PTSD, the same condition as him. I want the people who worship him to know he is human, she concluded. I spoke with three women who dated Whedon after his marriage ended. In their stories, he was not the hero that they had read about in the press, or the one who wanted to see women in control. He was more like the cold-blooded men he depicted in his work. Hmm. Sarah, a pseudonym, met Whedon when she was promoting Age of Ultron. She was a 22-year-old freelance writer who interviewed him for a pop culture website after the piece uh, published. She began, or they began a sexual relationship. He led me to believe he was single, she said. One night, she went out for drinks alone with a friend Whedon wanted her to meet. After the friend mentioned... After the friend mentioned she had a long-term boyfriend, Sarah asked what his name was. I'm dating Joss Whedon, the woman replied. Sarah went into the bathroom and threw up. What the fuck is he playing at? She remembers thinking. Aaron Shade, a television writer. We, we know. It's exactly as darkly sexual as you think. Aaron Shade, a television writer who moonlights as a psychic medium, got involved with Whedon in 2013 while working as a showrunner's assistant on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., a series he created with one of his younger half-brothers and the brother's wife. He was 49, she was 23, and a virgin. One day, Whedon texted her with an unusual request. Would she come over to his house for the weekend to watch him write? He would pay $2,500 more than Shade had made in a month as an assistant. There is one caveat. She had to hide it from her boss. Oh, from her bosses. They dated on and off in secret for nearly a year before she slept with him. Not long after, he sent a brief email telling her he couldn't have a girlfriend. Seven years later, she made a 10-hour YouTube series called Aaron the Snake Whisperer that chronicled her painful consequences of the relationship. Surrounded by candles and crystals, she described their relationship as an abuse of power. People like Joss offset their trauma on other people in exchange for their energy and to take their energy to keep going, to keep themselves alive, almost, she told me. That's why he's so good at the vampire narrative. Whedon says, quote, he should have handled the situation better. All right, that's it. That's all he has to say. This guy is really citing his own, like, cult, like, uh, career death warrant maybe he thinks that'll work in his weird backward psychology way but i mean i'm happy to see it 
When Arden Lee met Whedon in 2012, she was a sex educator in her 20s and author of The New Rules of Attraction, a book about being a female pickup artist. She picked him up at a club. After their second date, Whedon sent her DVDs of Dollhouse. The heroine, played by Buffy alum Eliza Dushku, has no friends, no family, and no personality. A secret corporation has used advanced technology to erase all of her memory and turn her into a, quote, doll, a living robot customized to cater to the darkest desires of the company's wealthy clients. Some critics argued the premise was sexist. Yeah, it sounds like your typical uh, woman in the refrigerator kind of uh, scenario, if you're going to. That's what I imagine the critics were saying. Probably accurate. But uh, Lee, who'd worked as a professional dominatrix, related to the dolls and was moved by Whedon's depiction of them. She and Whedon began a relationship as, quote, owner and doll. i repeat that. She and Whedon began a relationship as, quote, owner and doll. End quote. For the most part, she found it gratifying, and she believed he did too. Whedon told Lee he identified with a character in Dollhouse, Topher, the nerdy scientist who imprints the dolls with their personalities. It's not a flattering comparison. As one of Topher's colleagues points out, he was picked to work at the dollhouse because he had no morals. Quote, you always had thought of people as playthings. This is not a judgment. You always take good care of your toys. Ugh. That last line is disingenuous. Topher doesn't take good care of his dolls, and in the end, according to Lee, neither did Whedon. On Dollhouse, she reminded me, bad dolls are banished to the attic, a room where they are forced to relive their worst nightmares over and over. In her epilogue to The New Rules of Attraction, Lee wrote that one of her worst memories was of a boyfriend breaking up with her on her birthday. Whedon read the book, and they talked about the epilogue. In 2015, hours before her birthday, he came over to her house and told her their relationship was over. If he was like, what could I do to that Arden that would be her worst nightmare, and that would have been it, she said. Joss destroyed a beautiful thing just to show he had the power to. It's literally everything you need to know about him. Whedon didn't want to talk about his relationships with women in any detail, but it was possible to infer from various remarks he made throughout our conversations that he had been aware, at least to some extent, of the pain he had caused. The year his marriage ended, he saw the Globe's production of Richard III, with Mark Rylance playing the conniving, sadistic, charismatic aristocrat who slaughters everyone in his path to the throne and winks at the audience while he does it. Richard is an ugly hunchback, and women have always rejected him. His own mother loathes him. As he seeks the crown, his, he tricks women into bed and has them murdered when he no longer has use for them. He appears devoid of empathy, but in one of the play's final scenes, he awakens, tormented by fear, and for the first time displays a pang of remorse. Alas, I rather hate myself for hateful deeds committed by myself. I am a villain, yet I lie. I am not. As Whedon quoted from that scene, he lets out a choked groan and mimicked the act of plunging a knife in his stomach. It just reached into my fucking guts, he said. He confessed that he had identified more closely with Richard than with any of the other characters in Shakespeare's canon. With the possible exception of Falstaff, the quote, holy fool. Yeah, fucking, yeah, no. Nobody. Um, Whedon's experience of seeing Richard III coincided with his own coronation of a kind. He had just directed Marvel's Avengers, a commercial juggernaut featuring an all-star cast led by Robert Downey Jr., Chris Evans, and Scarlett Johansson. 
In a profile pegged to its release, GQ hailed Whedon as, quote, the most inventive pop storyteller of his generation. By then, he had influenced the entire generation of TV creators. His delight in quirky language, his playful subversion of genre conventions, his affinity for powerful female protagonists, you could observe these hallmarks reflected in any number of shows that arrived in Buffy's wake, from Veronica Mars to Battlestar Galactica and Lost. But as the culture around him continued to change, certain fans began to see Whedon's work through a more clerical, a critical lens, discerning an attitude towards women that seemed unenlightened by the standards of the female-centered shows and movies his success had come, in some cases, to help spawn. In 2017, the same year Cole published her letter, an old Wonder Woman screenplay he had written surface online. Compared with the Wonder Woman movie Patty Jenkins had recently directed, his version struck some readers as creepy and sexist, with passages that seemed to linger gratuitously on, on the Amazon's sex appeal. Quote, You cannot tell me Joss Whedon didn't write the original Wonder Woman script while furiously cranking his hog. One woman tweeted, Who the fuck wrote that? I'm looking it up right now. <coughs> I need to know who wrote that because it was right and i bet you that uncredited person was someone we know so i'm going to write in joss whedon cranking his hog wonder woman we're going to find that we're going to give credit um to that tweet let's find it let's find it let's find it twitter twitter it well i'll tell you what i can't find it right now i'm not gonna like grind the show to a halt to find it but uh i'm just gonna read it one more time you cannot tell me that joss whedon didn't write this original wonder woman script while not furiously cranking his hog that year whedon took a job doing rewrites for the warner brothers film justice league a dc property directed by jack snyder for two white men in their 50s making comic book flicks, he and Snyder could hardly have been less creatively or philosophically aligned. While Whedon's superhero epics were leavened by irony and wordplay, Snyder's were brooding and, brooding and self-important and bad. Um, with a visual style that combined the artificiality of a video game with the fascist aesthetic of Lenny Reifenstahl production. Lenny Reifenstahl getting some play lately in, in, in those words. Those... Words are, words are flying about Rennie Reifenstahl. Um, Snyder's fans were every bit as ardent as Whedon's had been, but his previous effort, Batman v Superman, had faltered at the box office because it was bad and offended uh, critics because it was bad and offensive, with A.O. Scott going as far to assert that Snyder and his corporate backers had, quote, no evident motive to produce such a joyless spectacle of power beyond their own aggrandizement. Exactly. Now those backers were concerned about how their next venture was shaping up, and early screenwriting did not uh, an early screening did not reassure them. Quote, they asked me to fix it, and I thought I could help, Whedon told me. He now regards this decision as one of the biggest regrets of his life. At first, the studio executive told Whedon his role would be restricted to writing and advising. But soon it became clear to Whedon they had lost faith in Snyder's vision and wanted him to take full control. Which probably did turn out to be a better uh, film. Undoubtedly. But still kind of bad. A representative from Warner Brothers denied this. Actually, considerably bad. Snyder uh, has publicly stated he left the project to spend time with his family. His daughter had died by suicide two months earlier. Yeah, it was awful. Whedon. 
Now installed in the director's chair, oversaw nearly 40 days of reshoots, a complicated and laborious undertaking. From the start, things were tense between him and the stars. It wasn't just that he wanted to impose a whole new vision on their work. He introduced an entirely different style of management. Snyder had given the actors exceptional license with the script, encouraging them to ad-lib dialogue, which turned out exceptionally well. And we didn't expected them to say their lines exactly as he'd written them down. That didn't go so well at all, one crew member told me. Some actors criticized his writing. By Whedon's account, Gal Gadot, who played Wonder Woman, suggested that he, the director of the highest-grossing superhero movie at the time, didn't understand how superhero movies worked. At one point, Whedon paused the shoot and, according to the crew member, announced that he had never worked with, quote, a ruder group of people. The actors fell silent. What is he like, in seventh grade? Jesus Christ. The actors, at least some of them, felt Whedon had been rude, too. Ray Fisher, a young black actor, played Cyborg, probably the coolest character in the movie, even though it received about five minutes in the original cut. Um, it was his first major role. Snyder had centered on the film, uh, centered the film on his character, the first black superhero in a DC movie, and he treated Fisher as a writing partner, soliciting his opinions on the film's representations of black people. Whedon downsized Cyborg's role, cutting scenes that, in Fisher's view, challenged stereotypes. When Fisher raised his concerns about the revisions in a phone call, Whedon cut him off. Quote, it feels like I'm taking notes right now, Whedon told him, according to The Hollywood Reporter. And quote, I don't like taking notes from anybody, not even Robert Downey Jr. Motherfucker, you take notes from, notes from Robert Downey Jr. on a superhero film. He is one of, if not the only people in a superhero film who's probably out there like, doing the job that they want to do, although not anymore, and my guess is probably because he can no longer maintain the requirements of what they would want you to do, but I am enjoying uh, watching him fade into the sunset. Um, Gadot didn't care for Whedon's style either. Last year, she told reporters that Whedon threatened her and said uh, he would make her career, quote, her career miserable. Whedon told me he did no such thing. I don't threaten people. Who does that? He concluded she had just misunderstood him. Quote, oh my God. <laughs> he concluded she had misunderstood him. Quote, English is not her first language, and I tend to be annoyingly flowery in my speech. He recalled arguing over a scene she wanted to cut. Can you imagine being overly flowery in your speech where you're like knowingly talking to someone who's where English isn't their first language and you're like forcing words in where they might not understand on purpose so you can be a dickhead to them? That's what he's doing. And he's knowingly saying that, basically, here. I mean, he's, he, he, is, he is a man who is aware of all his faults, but also completely unaware of them simultaneously. It's fucking incredible. Um, Whedon told me he did no such thing. I don't threaten people. Who does that? He concluded she had just misunderstood him. English is not her first language, and I tend to be annoyingly flowery in my speech. Yeah, flowery. That's what we'll talk about. He recalled arguing over a scene she wanted to cut. And also, he's making the point about flowery language instead of the fact that he was being a dickhead. He told her jokingly that if she wanted to get rid of it, uh, scene that he, she wanted to cut, she would have to tie him to a railroad track and do it to his dead body. Maybe she should have. Then I was told, in quotes, that I had said something about her dead body and tying her to a railroad track, he said. Gadot did not agree with Whedon's version of the events. I understood perfectly, she told New York in an email. Yep, sounds right. As for Whedon's claim that he doesn't threaten people, an, act an actress on Angel told me that he hadn't been true back when she knew him. After her agent pushed her to get a raise, she claims Whedon called me at home 
called her at home and said she was, quote, never going to work with him or 20th Century Fox ever again. Good for her. Reading Ghetto's quote, she thought, wow, he's still using that line. We can deny this too. Justice League premiered in the fall of 2017. It was a critical and commercial debacle. Snyder's fans blamed Whedon for his failures, accusing him, as one tweet put it, of turning Snyder's godlike heroes into clowns. I mean, they're superheroes. They're kind of already clowns, representing metaphorical like, context and stories. The fact that they make movies about them. I mean, really, it's a story with pictures. Uh, I don't know, whatever. That's a whole entire diatribe. Justice League premiered in the fall of 2017 as critical and commercial debacle. The power of freedom, a force Whedon had done so much to cultivate at the start of his career, was now wielded against him. The fans launched an elaborate campaign. Oh, I love this. The fans launched an elaborate campaign pressuring Warner Brothers to release the version. Release the Snyder Cut. Release the Snyder Cut. Well, they don't have to uh, worry about it anymore. Totally out. Super fucking long. And uh, what do you think? How is it worth watching four hours of that? Chartering a plane, was it worth watching four hours of a superhero TV series crammed into one movie? Um, the fans launched an elaborate campaign pressuring Warner Brothers to release the version Snyder initially planned, charting, chartering a plane to fly a banner over Warner Studios. Just as Whedon had once used a message uh, board to bond with Buffy obsessives, Snyder used the social media platform Vero to rally his followers sharing pictures of his morning workouts alongside images that happened to be derived from his cut of the film. Several months... In uh, normal thing to do. Several months into the pandemic, the studio, desperate for content, announced that his cut would air on HBO Max. At an online fan event celebrating the upcoming release, Snyder declared he would set the movie on fire before using a single frame he had not filmed himself. Quote, Our Lord and Savior, Jack Snyder! Yeah, I'll just say it wrong. Someone wrote in the comments below on the live stream. Around the same time, amid worldwide protests against racism, Fisher posted a series of tweets accusing Whedon of abusing his power in charging studio executives with, quote, enabling the director. In a Forbes interview, Fisher said he had told Whedon, uh, he had been told Whedon had used color correction to change the color of an actor's complexion because he didn't like the actor's skin tone. Quote, man, everything 2020's been, everything with uh, 2020's been, this was the tipping point for me, Fisher said. Fisher did not respond to multiple interview requests. Whedon was stunned. He had given the whole movie a lighter look, brightening everything in post-production, including all the faces. Okay. He said the claim he had disliked the character's skin tone when Forbes ultimately, uh, which Forbes ultimately <laughs> retracted, uh, was false and unjust. Whedon says he cut down Cyborg's role for two reasons. The storyline, quote, logically made no sense. Uh, I, in seeing the completed cut with all the cyborg storyline, that was like the only storyline that made sense. Uh, and he felt the acting was bad. Whoa, buddy. This guy was really looking to never get a job again on his way out, wasn't he? According to a source familiar with the project, Whedon wasn't alone in feeling that way. At test screenings, viewers deemed cyborg the worst of all the characters in the film. Despite that, Whedon... <sighs> yeah. Ooh. Interesting. Well, they're wrong. Despite that, Whedon insists he spent hours discussing the changes with Fisher and that their conversations were friendly and respectful. None of the claims Fisher made in the media were, quote, either true or merited discussing, Whedon told me. He could think of only one way to explain Fisher's motives. Quote, we're talking about a malevolent force, he said. We're talking about a bad actor in both senses. Fuck you. Holy shit. Fuck you. 
fuck you if that quote ever allows you to get another job in another fucking, in, in any conceivable way. Fuck you. Just fuck you. <laughs> oh my God. Some of Whedon's defenders proposed a theory. What if Fisher had been doing Snyder's bidding? Without furnishing proof, they speculated that Snyder had tricked Fisher into thinking Whedon was racist. Or maybe Fisher knew perfectly well his allegations were bullshit. Either way, the actor and director had, quote, manufactured a controversy that made Snyder seem more like a progressive ally while diverting attention from the fact that their early cut had been a disaster. Whedon's advocates believed this campaign had poisoned Carpenter against Whedon, causing her to see the complicated story of their relationship as a simplistic narrative of abuse. Quote, once someone lights a fuse and people see there's a flame, they run to it and throw stuff into it, one person in Whedon's circle said. Wouldn't want to be in Whedon's circle. Sound like a bunch of shitheads. In our conversation, Whedon was somewhat more circumspect. Quote, I don't know who started it, he told me. I just know in whose name it was done. Snyder's superfans were attacking him online as a bad feminist and a bad husband. Quote, they don't give a fuck about feminism, he said. Quote, I was made a target by my ex-wife and people exploited that cynically. End quote. Love blame ex-wife for uh, my problems in life. As he explained this theory, his voice sank into a hoarse whisper. Quote, she put out a letter saying some bad things I'd done and saying some untrue things about me. But I had done the bad things, and so people I knew, I was gettable. Oh, you're extremely fucking gettable. When Snyder's four-hour cut was finally unveiled, it was critically acclaimed. Yeah, it was better than the other one, for goddamn sure. His fans poured through both films to analyze the differences. Some seized on a belief put forth by Fisher that Whedon had intentionally erased people of color from the film. A remarkable reversal had taken place. Fifteen years earlier, Snyder's work was widely seen as the epitome of problematic cinema. His breakout effort, 300, a sword and sandal epic about the Persian Wars, was, quote, so overtly racist in the view of the UN delegation from Iran that it threatened to incite, quote, a clash of civilizations. Obviously overstating things. Now the internet had recast Snyder as a progressive hero while branding Whedon, its progressive hero of yesterday, as a villain and bigot. Quote, the beginning of the internet had raised me up and the modern internet pulled me down. Whedon said, the perfect symmetry is not lost on me. At Whedon's house, his wife Horton would occasionally come into the living room bearing tea and dark chocolates. <laughs> dark chocolates for the dark fucking vampire. When I asked how, uh, where they'd met, she said, right here. Okay. A mutual friend introduced them in the winter of 2019 after learning Whedon had bought several of Horton's paintings, including a self-portrait. Oh, buddy, is he really doing the art curator kind of grift on this poor lady? Get out. Get out. She was greeted by an image of herself when she walked into his home. Get out! Get out! <laughs> Get out of the house. By then, Whedon had begun seeking treatment for sex and love addiction, along with other addictive tendencies. James Franco, Kevin Spacey, Harvey Weinstein have all taken similar paths. Put them in that group. In your mind, mentally connect Kevin Spacey, James Franco, Harvey Weinstein, Jeffrey Epstein. Connect these people. Connect them. Connect them. Connect them. There you go. Mentally connect these people. All right, let's continue. Was he using a page out of some crisis management playbook? Yes. Whedon says he was generally committed to the work. I decided to take control of my life. Or to try, he told me. The first thing I did with Heather was to tell her my patterns, which was not my MO, because I couldn't shut up about it because I finally found someone I, I finally found somebody I found more important than me. 
Life was good. Yeah, it's really easy to take the uh, the kind of like savior complex once you've been an absolute piece of trash. Life was good and also bad. Having overcome the isolation and ridicule of his childhood, childhood, he found himself in the role of social outcast once more. He still had an agent, but it seemed like no one wanted to work with him. Gee, I wonder why. At Fisher's urging, Warner had conducted a series of investigations into the Justice League production. The studio won't disclose its findings, but in late 2020, it announced, quote, remedial action had been taken. A few weeks earlier, HBO revealed that Whedon would no longer serve as a showrunner of The Nevers, his science fiction series about women with supernatural powers. He was doing it again! He was about to do it again. Hmm. He's like a serial abusing showrunner. The network scrubbed his name from the show's marketing materials. Over the last year, some of his fans have tried to scrub him out too, erasing him from their narratives about what made Buffy great. In posts and essays, they have downplayed his role in the show's development, pointing out that many people, including many women, were critically important to his success. It may be hard to accept that Whedon could have understood the pain of a character like Buffy, a woman who endures infidelity, attempted rape, and endless violence, but the belief that her story was something other than the projection of a psyche is ultimately just another fantasy. Obviously, after reading this, it would be literally impossible for me to watch that show and ever take it remotely seriously. Whedon did understand pain, his own, and that's, that's part of the medicine that you should fucking digest. Some of that pain, as he once put it on me, spilled over into the people around him. And some of it was channeled into his art. Whedon once wrote a line that could be served as a warning to all of us. In Firefly, one of the crew members, Jane, accidentally tosses the spoils of a botched robbery into the hands of the town's poor. Jane is not a good man. But when he returns to the town years later, he sees its residents have erected a statue in his honor. When he confides to the crew's captain that he's unsettled by this development, the captain just stares into the distance. It's my estimation that every man that ever got a statue made him every man that ever got a statue made of him was one kind of son of a bitch or another he says ain't about you jane it's about what they need except that he's reading that completely backwards nobody ever fell from a pedestal into anything but a pit whedon told me in a call one day a few months had passed since our conversations at his house in that time he'd finally made peace with himself he said could I have done marriage better? He asked. Don't get me started. Could I have done a better? Had I, could I have been a better showrunner? Absolutely. Should I have been nicer? He considered the question. Perhaps he could have been calmer, more direct. But would they have not compromised the work? Maybe the problem was that he had. <laughs> Once again, the importance of the work to this man is sacrosanct, and everyone else can go fucking die under its giant bulldozer of bullshit. People had been using every weaponizable word of the modern era to make it seem like I was an abusive monster, he said. But I'm one of the nicer showrunners that's ever been. I want to repeat the previous uh, paragraph before I end. Maybe the problem was he had been too nice, he said. He wanted people to love him, which meant he was direct. 
people thought he was harsh. In any case, he decided he was done worrying about all that. Yeah, just don't worry about it all. People had been using every weaponizable word of the modern era to make it seem like I was an abusable monster, he said. I think I'm one of the nicer Shoreners that's ever been. Well, I would say if you consider that, then you probably have some serious motherfucking problems. But I would also go back to the very beginning of this little tale. Let's, there we go. Back to here. Okay. And I'm just going to read this quote. He felt that he, quote, had to sleep with them, that he was, quote, powerless to resist. I laughed. I'm not actually joking, he said. Ugh. Okay. <clears throat> we lived through that experience together. And now we know that he is the number one garbage person that's doing shit. And even if he is the nicest person in Hollywood, showrunner, or whatever he's trying to say, what does that mean? It means some bad shit. I'm going to finish it up with this little uh, fun little shout and murmur from the old uh, New Yorker. This is the January 31st issue uh, by Vicky Wang, the, quote, Anne of Green Gables VR experience. There are four possible skin tones for your orphan avatar, but all come with red hair. The red hair parts down the middle and exists throughout the 30 minutes in two long braids. Your experience takes place in a room with sensors placed in your hands and feet and a headset that dictates what you see and hear. Should you wander out of your bounds, a metal, a metal railing will restrain you. Should you flip over this railing, a staff member will flip you back. <laughs> Enjoy the carriage ride down the Avon... Avonlea Main Road, which dips and winds as good as rural roads should. Wave hello to the brook, the valley, the hollow, the pond landing, and another brook over which the carriage goes because this brook has a bridge. It's always autumn in Avonlea, and there's always a breeze, mimicked by a fan that blows directly at your place. Meet Marilla and Matthew Cuthbert, uh, hard-working siblings whose skin tones, wrinkled white, can't be changed, and who's requested from the orphanage a boy, not a girl. Marilla says, fiddlesticks, a lot. Matthew doesn't speak, but can grimace, shrug, grunt, nod, or frown. They decide to keep you after all, but reminding you a few times, seriously, and later, teasingly, that you should have been a boy. State your name, your real name, and the computer will intentionally emit one vowel from it. Preferably an E. If your name is Chen, the 10 minutes when you are in the classroom simulation, you, you will hear your name on the blackboard as, you will see your name on the blackboard as CHN. And you can tell your teacher that when you're actually Chen with an E. Without provocation, a roguishly handsome classmate yanks one of your fiery red plates and calls you a root vegetable at the top of his lungs. The room fills with the scent of stale carrot cake, and a staff member pulls your real hair with as much force as necessary to cause you actual pain. You will then be presented with a virtual weapons inventory, which includes a slate, a foam noodle, a retractable prop dagger, an inflatable hammer, and a dead fish. You can, you can hit Gilbert Blythe with any of the above as many times as you wish, and he will not be severely injured. Diana Barry, your bosom friend, awaits you outside the classroom, and for six minutes, she and you will go on various life-affirming adventures. Will it be the haunted wood, the cordial cabinet, jumping on old people asleep in their beds, sinking a rowboat while reenacting a Tennyson poem, 
discussing the latest fashions like puffed sleeves or green hair dye and dis disastrously trying to procure them. After Buzzum Friends shenanigans, your schooling must continue so that you don't grow up totally daft. You're at a desk, studying for hours, but in real time, no more than 45 seconds. The calendar pages in front of you keep falling off. Your pencil breaks and is magically resharpened. Without, uh, what a montage, you think? And 30 seconds later, you're at Queen's Academy with Gilbert Blythe, but not Diana Barry, whose mother doesn't approve of higher education for girls. At Queen's, you obtain your teaching license in one year instead of two and win the coveted coveted Avery scholarship, making you the first island girl to attend a four-year college. Friends surround you and exult you, even Gilbert, whom you've forgiven but who is now obsessed with you. Triumphant music folds in. Hip hip hooray! The VR experience can be stopped here by selecting yes, I wish to end my experience from the pop-up menu. You can then remove your headset and leave the room feeling galvanized, like you, like you can do anything. Like a woman in 1881 might have felt had she been allowed to attend college alongside braid-pulling men. Or you can stay for the final two minutes. The bank that holds all the Cuthbert savings fails. Upon receiving this news, Matthew has a heart attack and dies. Green Gables is now in danger of being sold. You decline the Avery scholarship and teach at a local school and help Marilla. Eventually, you do attend college and become a teacher who aspires to write. Gilbert goes to college too, uh, becomes a doctor, makes a proposal of marriage, which you reject, makes another proposal of marriage, which you accept, because who else are you going to marry in this beloved tale? The wedding is held at Green Gables. Gilbert takes over his uncle's clinic, and you stop teaching and writing and have seven beautiful kids in the space of ten years. The VR experience ends here, and though you do leave the room less galvanized, you are relieved that the immense pressure to amount to something has resolved itself, and in the natural course of adulting, priorities must change. A person can't trailblaze forever. She has to slow down and sometimes take stock of societal norms. Also, motherhood is wonderful, as is running your own home. But why does your home have to be so idyllic, overlooking a harbor, a brook, and a valley somewhat, somehow simultaneously? And where are your three kids? The husband, of course, doesn't know because he's not here. And so should the urge seize you with the quick tap of that red button near your temple. You can return to the past, the classroom, and, free of charge for up to a minute, smack young Gil again with a dead fish. A meditation on the nature of existence and virtual experiences and the nature of edifying yourself through a fictional scenario on what may inform your life in the real world. And, you know, I, I said I was going to end it, but uh, I don't feel like it yet. I'm going to read uh, one more story that is for everyone. Let's say you love math, you love reading, you love stories, you love writing, you love uh, James M. Vaughn Jr., you love uh, Fermat, you love theorems. If you love all those things, you're going to love this. Let me turn the microphone to face me so that can be nice and understood. All right. A patron's vital spark revived a math quest. This is on uh, the uh, Science Times section, Tuesday, February 1st. James N. Baum Jr. uses inheritance to fuel the effort to solve a centuries-old puzzle by William J. Broad. Fermat's last theorem, a riddle put forward by one of history's great mathematicians, has baffled experts for more than 300 years. Then, a genius toiled in secret for seven years to solve it according to the unusual narrative.
That shy Englishman, Andrew Wiles, made his feat public in the early 1990s and amassed a glittering array of tributes. In 2016, he won the Abel Prize, Math's top award. It came with a $700,000 purse. Now, a wealthy Texas philanthropist is recounting how his financial support created a community of Fairmat innovators that over decades lent moral and mathematical support to Dr. Wiles. That patronage drew tap mathematicians to the puzzle after great minds had given up and uh, had succeeded. Hmm. That patronage drew top mathematicians to the puzzle after great minds had given up, succeeded in bringing the Morbin field back to life, and many, and may have helped make Dr. Wiles' breakthrough possible. Let me continue. We solved the problem. The philanthropist James N. Vaughn, 82, president of the Vaughn Foundation Fund, said in an interview, quote, if we hadn't put the program together as we did, it would still be unsolved, end quote. In interviews, top experts described Mr. Vaughn's foundation and its early financial support as sparks that had lit an intellectual fire, although they stopped short of saying that his backing had been responsible for Dr. Wiles' Fairmat breakthrough. Dr. Wiles did not respond to inquiries. <laughs> You'll notice Dr. Wiles' lack of commentary uh, speaks volumes as we continue. Recently, Mr. Vaughn gave the University of Texas a collection of 125 rare and foundational books on the history of mathematics. As I pulled out this nice page. Stick with me, we've got some good music for the end. Okay. Nice picture of this uh, man in set looking directly at the camera. His wife in the background, out of focus, looking off over his shoulder as if uh, she thinks everything that he's uh, been spending his $700,000 on is absolutely full of shit. Um, but I'll continue. <laughs> and the uh, gift had prompted him to speak publicly of other foundation projects that have gone longly, or largely unheralded. All right. Wall Gregarious, Mr. Vaughn, heir to a Texas oil fortune, is an extremely private man who has never before claimed the pub uh, publicly that his philanthropy begot the mathematical feat. Hmm. Even so, he takes immense pride in what he characterizes as his legacy. Mr. Vaughn said that he and his wife had no children and that the Fairmat triumph was, some, uh, was how he hoped he would be remembered. There you go. And remember, remembering him right very now. Quote, it was very important to have someone like Vaughn doing this, said Dorian Goldfield, uh, Goldfeld, a professor of mathematics at Columbia University who worked closely with Mr. Vaughn. Quote, it made the problem more visible to more people, Mr. Vaughn's financial, uh, more people. Mr. Vaughn's financial aid, he added, eventually led to wide Fermat collaborations, including an early gathering that Dr. Wiles helped organize. It's really great to have people like Vaughn, said Neil I. Koblitz, professor of mathematics at the University of Washington, who edited a Fermat book for the Vaughn Foundation. Nobody was working on the problem. Vaughn had the money and the interest. It seems unlikely that Mr. Vaughn had a direct impact on what turned out to be the Byzantine math of the Fermat proof, but in science uh, private donors often act as the pathfinders for government investment 
in difficult research. Mr. Vaughn led, and Washington followed. In the 1970s and 1980s, he directed millions of dollars to Fermat conferences, authors, and researchers, giving the old field new life and social acceptability. Subsequently, in the early 1990s, the National Science Foundation, a federal agency, lent its support. It provided Dr. Wiles, then at Princeton University, with math research grants totaling nearly a half a million dollars. It turns out that both men sought to advance an arcane branch of mathematics known as elliptic curves. The field's equations built up sets of simple ge geometric forms that can lead to infinite runs of subsidiary equations and, when solved, solutions to the problems of, binding, of blinding complexity. The exotic forms led Dr. Wiles to the Fermat breakthrough. Dr. Wiles, now 68 and known as Sir Andrew, after being named a knight commander of the British Empire, did not respond to repeated, claim, uh, repeated emails asking for his view on Mr. Vaughn's claim. According to his biographer, Dr. Wiles com comes across as, quote, diffident and dislikes speaking publicly. While historians may one day debate whether Mr. Vaughn should share a measure of credit for the Wiles breakthrough, the body of developing evidence already makes the Texan's blunt declaration seem less like a uh, less like a yarn than a reasonable hmm, seem less like a yarn than a reasonable possibility. Interesting. He really deserves the recognition, Dr. Goldfeld said of Mr. Vaughn. Pierre de Fermat was a French lawyer of the 17th century who pursued math as a hobby. After his death, appraisals of his work revealed him to be a giant. He helped lay the foundations of calculus and probability theory. Fermat also left behind a large body of what he called theorems. The general claims rest on chains of logic. Fermat was something of a tease. He often asserted the truth of a proposition, but gave no, gave no details. I wouldn't know anything about that. Um, it's fun. It's fun to do. It's fun to know and not provide details. Uh... Uh, skeptics found to their surprise that in many of his sketchy claims were in fact true. Yeah, he was right. I mean, not every time because people doesn't, doesn't show their proof doesn't mean it's not true. It just means you can't necessarily believe them. Uh, the exception came to be known as Fermat's last theorem. Around 1637, he had scribbled the equation in a book's margins, claiming to be a marvelous proof, but called the space too small for particulars. Over time, his reputation drove thousands of mathematicians to take on the problem. The simple equation had just three elements, but an infinite number of possible solutions. The challenge was to find ways of bounding the infinite. Lenhard Euler was an 18th century Swiss mathematician who solved hundreds of knotty problems in acoustics, finance, navigation, and many other fields. In 1753, he announced that he had solved an aspect of Fermat's theorem. It was the first such advance in a century of grueling effort. After that, little progress was made, and top mathematicians came to see the riddle as irrelevant. Carl Gauss, a German savant of the 19th century, called it an isolated claim of, quote, very little interest. Fascination with the Fermat riddle nonetheless lingered among a subset of mathematicians, professor, uh, professional and amateur. Excuse me. Um, let us see. 
fascination with the Fermat riddle nonetheless lingered among a subset of mathematicians. Mr. Vaughn was born on July 11th, 1939. His family lived in Tyler, Texas, near one of the world's great oil strikes, the East Texas Gushers of 1930. The Vaughns grew rich from the resulting economic boom. Mr. Vaughn's father and paternal grandfather were both physicians who became businessmen and investors in oil and its associated fields, like steel pipes for drilling into layers of bedrock. Mr. Vaughn was the kind of boy who liked nothing better than scanning the sky with his family's telescope, can uh, feel some kinship there. In third grade, he recalled his fascination with the starry dome um, and, caught his, and caught the attention of his future wife, Sally Verner. She eventually became an artist. In 1961, Mr. Vaughn graduated from the University of Texas at Austin and soon became a Fermat devotee. Okay. I guess that's what you do when you're a Texas oil scion. A main catalyst was a book published that year, quote, The Last Problem, by the mathematician Eric Temple Bell. Boldly, Dr. Bell declared that if civilization ended, the riddle would in all likelihood remain unsolved. Well, man also invented math, so why wouldn't the riddle remain unsolved? In 1963, Andrew Wiles, 10 years old, picked up the same book at a small public library in his hometown, Cambridge, England. As with Mr. Vaughn, it changed his life. Mr. Vaughn studied math in graduate school at the University of Texas, but never got, it, never got an advanced degree. Back in Tyler, looking for direction, he decided to establish a foundation that would fund basic research on the Fermat question. He did so in 1972. To his surprise, no mathematician would take his financial aid or even admit to being interested in working on the conundrum. Quote, it was seen as throwing money away, he recalled. The reputation of the riddle, he uh, added, was that fierce, uh, excuse me, the reputation of the riddle, he added, was that fierce. It was two years before I could give any grants. Wow, okay. So nobody wanted to work on your bunk thing. Uh, during the same years, Dr. Wiles was pursuing math studies in graduate school at the University of Cambridge and had put his Fermat dream on hold. His advisor, John Coates, urged him to take up research on elliptic curves. Unknown to either man, the obscure fuel field would eventually help the young mathematician solve the famous puzzle. In 1977, Dr. Wiles went to Harvard, where he helped perfect a new take on elliptic curves. It addressed a problem known as the Iwasawa theory, after Kenkichi Iwasawa, a Princeton mathematician. By then, Mr. Vaughn was busy revitalizing the hunt for a Fermat solution and started to heed his advisors on the wisdom of pursuing epileptic curve studies. An early, uh, an, excuse me, an early grantee was Harold M. Edwards, a mathematician at the current Institute of New York University who died in 2020. His 1977 book, Fermat's Last Theorem, became a classic that was often reprinted and cited and quite likely inspired other titles. Mr. Vaughn also promoted the basics. He gave so generously to a 1978 fundraising drive of the Mathematical Association of America that the society named its new national headquarters in Washington, D.C. after his grandfather. It became the Edgar H. Vaughn Building. Later, the group republished The Last Problem, Dr. Bell's inspirational book. In September 1981, Mr. Vaughn funded the world's big conference, uh, first big conference on the Fermat Riddle. It took place at the Endicott House, an MIT meeting center near Boston, set in a French manor-style mansion on leafy grounds. 
The organizers were Dr. Goldfeld of Columbia, Dr. Edwards of NYU, Dr. Koblitz of the University of Washington, Nicholas Katz of Princeton University, and two Harvard mathematicians, Barry Mazur and Dr. Wiles. The conference drew 76 participants, 16 from abroad, and the mathematicians presented 25 research papers. It was a dramatic shift from the early lack of interest. The attendees included Dr. Coates, the doctoral advisor to Dr. Wiles, Dr. Iwasawa, the Princeton professor, and Adel Selberg, a giant of mathematics who later won the Abel Prize. In 1982, the proceedings were published as number theory related to Fermat's last theorem. It was part of a series, Progress in Mathematics, for which Dr. Coates was a co-editor. In the book's preface, Dr. Goldfield credited Mr. Vaughn with the idea for the conference and thanked him for supporting it and, quote, pure mathematics in general. A half dozen of the book's chapters, including the one Dr. Wiles co-wrote, addressed the Iwasawa theory and elliptic curves. Some attendees complained to Mr. Vaughn that direct attacks on the Fermat question had been sidelined by the epileptic curve focus. Dr. Goldfeld recalled Mr. Vaughn as saying, but Mr. Vaughn, he added, was right in the end to have embraced the esoteric subspeciality. Shortly after the Boston Conference, Mr. Vaughn aimed higher. As a grand benefactor, he helped fund a gathering in 1986 of the International Congress of Mathematicians, the world's largest math body. The week-long math fest was held in Berkeley, California. On its sidelines, a discovery hinted at a possible Fermat progress. It occurred over cappuccino as Dr. Mazur of Harvard met with Ken Ribet, a Berkeley math professor. As Dr. Ribet described his most recent work with the Fermat question, Dr. Mazur, fresh from the Boston Conference, gaped at him in wonder. But don't you see, he asked, according to Fermat's Enigma, the author from Simon Singh's accounts of its solving, you've already done it. What Dr. Ribbit had done, in outline, unknowingly, was tie a possible Fermat solution to an elliptic curve puzzle known as the Taniyama-Shimura conjecture. He united worlds. If the conjecture could be proven true, so could the famed theorem. Now, after centuries of failure, the surprise linkage offered new hope. As news for the breakthrough spread, many mathematicians began to doubt that it could spur an advance. The conjecture, after all, had resisted proof for decades. Why would anyone succeed now? In contrast, Dr. Wiles was electrified. I knew at that moment that the course of my entire life was changing. He recalled... Uh, he recalled in an interview with Dr. Singh. Thus began seven years of solitude in which he traded math conferences for departmental colloquia for his cluttered office at Princeton, and when possible, his attic study. It was a risky move in a field that thrived in the open exchange of ideas. In contrast, Mr. Vaughn in the late 1980s was becoming more social, not less. He was on math visiting committees at Harvard and Princeton. Then, quite suddenly, at the peak of his influence, Mr. Vaughn's world fell apart. The reason was an audit of his foundation by the Internal Revenue Service. It ran from 1988 to 1992 and accused the charity of major improprieties. In the interview, Mr. Vaughn called the audit very unpleasant and, quote, extremely traumatic. Ultimately, he said the tax agency, agency threatened to impose $15 million in fines and to incarcerate him, and, incarcerate him and his wife, who was on the foundation's board. 
According to Mr. Vaughn, the root problem was the ignorance of the IRS auditor who felt mathematical research was, quote, a boondoggle. In the end, Mr. Vaughn added, we won every one of the charges, but the Vaughns nonetheless came to a turning point. If the foundation decided to end its funding of basic mathematics, and the foundation decided to end its funding of basic mathematics. Quote, we figured it was too dangerous, Mr. Vaughn recalled. You don't have that kind of trouble if you give it to a ballet company. In an interview, Bruce I. Friedland, an IREX spokesman, said the agency was prohibited by law from commenting on individual tax matters and audits. In the audit's aftermath, the Vaughns kept up their philanthropy, but, anthrop <laughs> but emphasized the arts. They gave to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Morgan Library Museum, and Museum of Fine Arts Boston, uh, the National Gallery of Art, and the Museum of Fine Arts Houston. They also donated to some of Mr. Vaughn's, uh, oh, they also donated some of Mrs. Vaughn's artwork. In June 1993, the Vaughn's reinvented themselves. Dr. Wiles came out of seclusion to announce that he had solved the problem. The New York Times ran its story atop the front page. At last, shout of Eureka, an age-old math mystery. Mr. Vaughn was thrilled. We think he's got it, he told a reporter in a rare media comment. Uh, the public response was so enthusiastic that a clothing chain asked Dr. Wiles to endorse its new line of menswear. The disaster then disaster struck. The proof turned out to harbor a major flaw, and Dr. Wiles again withdrew, this time seeking to rectify the error. As mathematicians clashed over the blunder's import, he recalled, uh, excuse me, he called in uh, Richard Taylor, a former student for assistance. Finally, in May 1995, nearly two years after the Wiles announcement, the revised proof was published. The maze of equations ran to 130 pages. After more than three centuries of effort, the Fermat infinities had been finally surmounted, and civilization, amazingly, was still intact. Not only that, but experts hailed the proof as a, establishing a series of unexpected finds that promised to open new frontiers. Despite Mr. Vaughn's role in the field's resurrection, the subsequent tributes paid him little, if any, note. At that point, it had been several years since his foundation funded research on the theorem, reducing the charity's visibility, and Mr. Vaughn, in any case, tended to be inaccessible, especially to the news media. As a result, only a small number of math experts knew of his early patronage. Their numbers are dwindling, as mathematicians who once worked with Mr. Vaughn die. It had been decades since Mr. Vaughn ceased his math philanthropy, but he recently donated his collection of rare math books to his alma mater. They include a first edition of Newton's masterwork, Principia, or The Principles, as well as dozens of volumes such as Distinguished Figures by Euler and Gauss. Quote, they're incredible. Aaron Pratt, curator of early books at the University of Texas, said of the volumes which now reside at the school's Harry Ransom Center. How the Vaughn Library got to the university is another twist. Mr. Vaughn said the books, after being seized by the IRS during the audit, had been lost for a time. They ended up in the hands of the Texas Comptroller of Public Accounts, a resting place for unclaimed property. Chris Bryan, an agency spokesman, said the agency had eventually succeeded in tracking down Mr. Vaughn and had helped to arrange for the library to be transferred to his alma mater. They could have been lost to history, Mr. Bryan said of the books. Mr. Vaughn's reemergence as a math patron seems to have rekindled his interests in early science. Before turning to math, he had dreamed of being an astronomer 
and said he was now considering whether to direct some of his philanthropy to that field. Still, he expressed no regrets about his mathematical past and seemed confident that history would see him as playing a decisive role in the Fermat breakthrough. Quote, things worked out really just very well. He said, we solved the problem. And I think that's enough for today. Um, if you enjoyed the program and you want to say something about anything, you can find me on Twitter or you can uh, call me up at 505-557-7932. Go ahead and let me know that you made it to the end of the program. And uh, let's see. I don't know. What else? Donate to your local food bank. And, uh, yeah, let's see. Enjoy this musical track that I have provided for you um, without looking ahead. Definitely. Um, you know, let's see. I'm definitely not just looking up a track to play because I didn't prepare something all this time. Hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. 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 This is where I'm going. This is where I'm going. This is where I'm going. I like this. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Here we go. This is it, and I'll see you later in the week. Enjoy.
Yes, I'm glad.